Come on, Fail Muse, stories that connect. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Montvale Muse podcast. I am Joe DeProspero, and currently switching gears from being a homeschool father teacher to being a cam counselor for my children. Like many parents in this environment, uh, it feels like a daily struggle where I'm trying to get them to play outside, and all they seem to want to do is stare into a tablet. All I'm trying to do is get my kids to be active, to experience the outdoors, to maybe interact with the outside world, to do something meaningful. But meaningful means different things to different people. And speaking of doing something meaningful, giving your fellow man or woman, I think we'd all agree, a second chance at life is certainly meaningful. Our guest today, Howard Eisenstatter of Business Enablement Services, gave the gift of life to a person he never even met. Donating a kidney to a complete stranger, Howard talks to me about the decision to donate, the moment he met his recipient, and the aneurysm that could have taken his life before he had the chance to save another. Howard, welcome to the podcast. We had our first conversation about you potentially being a guest back in February, I think it was, which now feels like a lifetime ago. We had frost on our windshield, still wearing jackets, and uh, this week in New Jersey, at least, it's about 86 degrees on average and humid. Uh, so <laughs> I'm definitely bummed that we can't be in the studio together. Now we're connecting virtually. I still consider myself fortunate to have met you now knowing your story. So can you start us off with what your role is with the firm and how long you've been here? Sure, Joe. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so I have been with KPMG since 2011, and currently I'm the global program manager for a system called KPMG Cosmos, which is a deal advisory system um, we're essentially rolling out to a number of member firms uh, even as we speak. Um, so I work with a few people based in ITS Global. I myself am in the BEZ group, Business Enablement Services. And uh, most of my work these days is with a team based in Munich, um, who is the sort of the business leads behind uh, KPMG Cosmos. Got it. So normally guests on the Montfail Muse have had at most one life-changing event happen to them. And that's usually the driver for the conversation. But before we even get to the main plot line here, you were blindsided by a life event that could have easily ended your life years ago. Can you tell us about that? In 2009, I had what's called a um, subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is normally referred to uh, by a more colloquial term, which is a brain aneurysm, or in fact, a ruptured brain aneurysm. Blindsided is probably the best word to describe it. There it was a really, it was an uneventful day. It was a Saturday, actually. Um, there were no warning signs that uh, people usually um, get there. Sometimes people have headaches in advance or blurred vision or a few other, uh, things that come up. Um, I had nothing. In fact, just the complete opposite. My, my children were all at play dates. I have three children who were 11 and nine at the time, two of them, the 11 year olds were twins. Um, and they were play dates at friends houses. Um, and my wife and I actually were going to take an afternoon nap, which was not uncommon for us on Saturday afternoons. And she went to sleep first and I laid down afterwards and it was just as I was lying down that um, I had what's I guess called a thunderclap headache, but it really feels like I was just hit in the back of the head with, with a hammer or something. And I essentially just passed out on the bed, um, which is not a really good way to do it because it appears as though you're sleeping when that happens, right? right Especially right. if the intent was to go take a nap. Fortunately, my sister had made an impromptu visit to our house, to stopped over and said hello. Our front door was unlocked. She let herself in, 
And that essentially started the process of my wife trying to wake me up to visit with my sister and realizing there was a problem. And then, um, and then getting me to the hospital, uh, you know, via ambulance. Um, no one was really clear why I was basically comatose. I mean, no one in the family was clear. The hospital was pretty good at diagnosing it quickly. So how um, do you think, it, it, so is it fair to say your sister potentially saved your life here? I mean, inadvertently. I guess it's fair to say that, but I would never tell her that. No, just kidding. <laughs> Don't want to um, give her that, yeah, that kind of leverage. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in that regards, it was, you know, really fortunate that she came when she did um, and that my wife felt uh, obligated to make sure I woke up to visit with my sister. Uh, so had those two things not happened, it could have been a much different story. She, um, I was taken to have Hackensack Hospital, who diagnosed it, actually stemmed the, the brain bleed. So a ruptured uh, brain aneurysm is essentially a, um, a blood vessel in your brain that, that thins out like almost like a piece of uh, like bubble gum. And um, at some point, uh, the bubble gum kind of bursts, right? The bubble bursts, and, and then you bleed out into your brain. So depending on how much of that and how bad it is really determines what your survivability potential is. Um, Hackensack Hospital was able to stem the bleeding and diagnose it, but they also said they really weren't in a position to treat it well. And uh, it was through some connections that my family or people in my family knew of um, that I got admitted um, directly into Columbia Presbyterian Hospital where, uh, where they were able to treat me. So what's the, what's the standard prognosis for something like this? And, and then how was the recovery for you as opposed to how it normally is for others? Right. So... I guess it varies. You know, you can look at the Wikipedia page, which I did back then, and again, that was 10 years ago, and you can see uh, large statistics, which are sort of macro numbers, um, and to do that, you would see that, or at least then you would have seen, that someone with a ruptured or subarachnoid hemorrhage um, has a basically a 50% uh, chance of not even making it through to the hospital. And of those who, who do survive, there's a very high likelihood that they'll have um, physical or cognitive therapy requirements afterwards. So they, they don't come out um, as good as they were before they went in, um, even if their life is saved. I had, brought to, I had a very fortunate um, situation. I had gone to the hospital. I had wound up having surgery the next day. And, and when I came out of surgery, or actually before I came out of surgery, my neurosurgeon had said to my wife that she can expect... Uh, 18 to 24 months of me requiring physical and cognitive therapy wow. to learn basic things like, I don't know, tying my shoe and putting together sentences and such. Yeah. Um, and by the time I woke up and was in the conversational mode, which is to say by the time some of the drugs had worn down a little bit and I was able to really speak, um, I was fully coherent. I was in my head. Nothing had happened. I was uh, able to recall things easily. Things worked out perfectly or as perfectly as they could obviously it's terrible nobody wants to go through having a brain aneurysm right but for your sister to show up when she did for your children not to be there and to not have that trauma to live with for the rest of their lives and for your wife to prep them in a way where it was delivered to them in a calm manner uh i would think that that's something you're pretty grateful for Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's there's probably 10,000 things that I don't know. And I tried when I came back to really understand all the little things. And like some are big things, which are, you know, how I got to the hospital and who helped make arrangements and all the people that were involved before and during that um, and after that. But also, you know, things that happened in my house that you would otherwise never notice you know friends who came into this or um, we have a whatever we have a friend who who 
during the week she came over and started washing my kitchen floor so that my wife wouldn't have to so that she could um you know so my wife could spend time with me and and by by the way i'd be remiss to leave my wife out of the story because aside from um you know her her sort of involvement with getting me to the hospital she essentially lived in the hospital with me for those two weeks um barely leaving um maybe once or twice to go home and shower uh visit the kids those kinds of things but she was uh a super strong advocate for me in the hospital um, I always say it was she was a stronger advocate past the point I was comfortable with, and I used to have to try to you know sort of tone her down a little bit from challenging doctors, um, you know, uh, statements of he can do this, he can do that, he's ready for this, and she would always push back. But um, for sure, I mean to answer your question, it's it's it, it, there are a thousand things that I'm, I'm grateful for over that, and and there's probably ten thousand things I should be grateful for. So. You know, I guess I just have to count on uh, hopefully, you know, being in a position to pay people back, whether I know it or not. And in, in, in other ways, there's certainly no way to keep score on an event like this. Well, Howard, what you just said about paying people back dovetails perfectly, maybe unintentionally, into the oh, next I knew thing it would. that I want to talk to you about. So as if that wasn't enough drama, <laughs> you went and put your name on a list that not many would. Um, a list that indicates you are willing to donate uh, a kidney to not just family or friends, but potentially a complete stranger. So what drove you to make that decision and how did it work out for you? Somewhere probably in the tw- late 2016, early 2017 timeframe, I became aware of the idea that um, you can do a live donation of a kidney uh, as opposed to um, signing up to have an organ donated after, after you, one dies. In terms of like wanting to do it, like it just seemed like a straight up easy thing. It's it's I you know I learned that donating a kidney was essentially um, a pretty pretty routine surgery. Once you get to the point where they're willing to operate, you know that your health is in line and your risks are really low. Um, and if you just you know I hate to break it down into a you know simple kind of like equation, but but it's a it's a small thing to do from a practical standpoint. I. I think for an individual, at least my experience was, and it's a huge thing to receive on the on the recipient side. So, and I know where you're going, and and, and one could argue, and I wouldn't necessarily fight too hard to say that um, being able to give a kidney to somebody was not a, in some way, a a trying to pay back, you know, the cosmos or or, or humanity or whatever for for my good fortune. Because again, I couldn't separate it out. But I also like to think that it just seems like it made good sense and something I might have done regardless, but I don't know. Let's take a minute to hear about an opportunity to unwind off campus. So this is the spot where we normally promote an upcoming event or firm initiative, but this time I'm simply reminding you about the upcoming firm shutdown for July 4th. Relax, disconnect, Do something that's meaningful, no matter how small. And I'm saying this to myself just as much as I'm saying it to all of you. The firm closes for a reason. To give us a chance to refresh our minds and bodies. So with that in mind, drop me a note. Let me know what you plan to do to disconnect and to relax. If for no other reason than to put it out into the universe and to commit to taking the necessary time to treat yourself the way you deserve. Enjoy. So then what was that process like and and how did you get connected with the person who was going to receive your kidney? 
Well, I live in Bergen County, but that's irrelevant. Um, and there's an organization called Renewal that basically their reason for existing is to help people who need kidneys find donors. People who need kidneys and, and have, let's say, end-stage renal failure may be on the national donor um, or the national kidney list, but uh, part of what really what they do is focus on finding people to donate and to sign up to donate uh, and helping them through that process. So uh, that was the organization I had heard about in 2017 or 2016, 2017. I, in 2017, the summer of 2017, I decided to uh, pursue that. I, um, I had a simple blood test. As far as I remember, it was either maybe a mouth swab at first, and then I went to one of these uh, um, Quest Labs or LabCorp or one of these local blood uh, places, and I gave a simple uh, uh, blood donation or uh, blood sample. Um, and then I got in contact. I was The organization called Renewal contacted me and asked me some questions. Now, Ultimately, um, before you are approved to make a kidney donation, there are 10,001 medical tests you have to go through of all kinds. Um, And before we really even got started, uh, when they asked medical history, I said, you know, they said, have you ever had, you know, this or this or that? And I said, yes. Well, I had this subarachnoid hemorrhage 10 years ago. That was, that gave them cause for concern um, because, uh, the, the subarachnoid hemorrhage is a form of stroke, and having had a stroke, they're pretty, at least a couple of years ago, they were pretty adamant about not even touching that from a donation perspective. So the transplant team, and that was at, um, it was at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, really decided not to pursue. And they had uh, uh, basically said, no thanks, we're not going to, um, you know, take you as a donor and live the rest of your life in peace, you know, uh, you know, go on. And frankly, I was really, really disappointed because I think once you decide that you want to do something like that, then you're pretty, you're pretty gung ho on doing it. Um, yeah. You know, by the time you convince yourself it's the right thing, and you're pretty committed. Uh, so basically, they had told me, um, you know, uh, they preferred not to pursue. Now, flash forward uh, two or fast forward two years later, in the summer of 2019, I get a phone call from from the renewal organization that said to me that uh, we see that you had signed up potentially to donate two years ago, um, but that never came to fruition. Are you still interested? So I have, this was completely now two years later out of the blue, really, and I was a little bit like you know jaw dropped, kind of mouth open thing, and I said I was, but you know, you guys, and from my view, you guys meant, you know, the medical teams and the, everyone sort of on the other side of me denied me that, you know, said I couldn't do it and, uh, and sort of put it off. They said at the, in this conversation, well, the reason we're calling is that we have someone who is essentially um, told medically she would never find a, uh, they didn't say she, but this person would never find a recipient on the, in the world um, because of a medical condition she has. You happen to be a match. Would you be interested in at least taking another step and looking at this. Um, so for me, it was like really like just a great, I, I just remember very clearly where I was, what I was doing and what the rest of the, the actual weekend was like. I was so hopeful because, because it seemed like now I was getting another shot to do the thing I wanted to do. I was certainly a little bit um, cautious or cautiously optimistic. Based on my story and having a chance to really describe it again, the transplant team was willing to hear it out a little bit more uh, because of the the needs of the recipient. They were willing to do the research. It was a different. It was at Montefiore Hospital, and, and so it was a new transplant team. It was two years later, which meant that the uh, medical, um, say, technology, but sort of the comfort level had increased a little bit. The knowledge had increased, and the head of the transplant team was willing to really 
peel back the um, my medical records and speak to my neurology team at Columbia Presbyterian and really understand, was I at risk? And the fact of the matter was that there was zero risk uh, residually from my, my brain aneurysm. So they were willing to, to move forward with it. So anyway, that started in August of 2019. In September, I went in for what they call, you know, jokingly the million dollar workup. You go in from 8.30 in the morning till 5.30 in the afternoon and you meet with, um, you have EKGs and stress tests and you have blood work and you have, you meet with a psychologist and a social worker. Um, wow. You meet with the surgeons on both recipient and the, and the donation side. You meet with the transplant team lead, um, who's a nurse who kind of coordinates everything. You just do it all. Um, every, it's like every half hour, it's like going on an interview. I imagine at Google where every like half hour you have a different place you have to be to meet with a different person about a different thing. Um, so I did that in, in September of this past year and they called me just a couple days later. First of all, they sent me all the results, uh, so I can have them and look at them in my own right or share them with any doctors I wanted to personal, but they told me that they were comfortable with me. Um, and they were comfortable with my, obviously my medical, uh, uh um, results and they were clearing me to go ahead and, uh, and to, and to donate. So for me, I took that, I spoke to a few um, people, doctors, my private doctors and such to make sure that they were good with the results and really that there was nothing, um, you know, overlooked. Um, and thank God I was able to, at that point, you know, schedule something. So, so we move forward. So really it was, a uh, um, for me personally, it was a long time coming. It was several years that I had hoped to, and, uh, sort of been told that I couldn't. And, and, and then it kind of came back out of the blue in a, in a way that was really, um, special, particularly because, uh, my recipient was someone who, uh, and I said it quickly, but it, you know, really is something that, that's meaningful to me is that she was essentially told that she could not find, there would not be a match for her on the planet. Um, she had a, a blood disease or a blood disorder that basically meant that a hundred percent of potential donors, uh, kidney donors would, would have been rejected by her, her body, by her system. And so she shouldn't keep her hopes up and, and, um, and it just so happened that, like, literally, or not literally, but I was the needle in the haystack that uh, they were hoping would materialize. When I, the day of the transplant, I spoke to the organization that helped coordinate it, and they said to me, there's four or five people, like, on the planet who need kidneys that keep them up at night, and because uh, I don't know how they're going to find, you know, ever find a donor for them because of whatever their medical conditions are. And, and that day, you know, of my surgery, um, they would be able to cross one off the list and say that's out of our our concern for now. We found we've, we've solved the problem for at least one of them. So, Howard, what are some potential blockers that might prevent someone from donating an organ? Uh, what should people consider beforehand? So, I learned early on in my education of this, and kind of the thing that smoothed the uh, smoothed the path for me where it was a realization that, first of all, the transplant team makes it uh, clear and obvious that their first priority is the well-being of the donor. So it's not like you walk in off the street and donate a kidney and blindly hope you won't need one six weeks down the road or some such time. Um, the amount of tests that you go through to get cleared uh, include uh, measurements of your kidney functions and the likelihood that it might be a problem in the future. Obviously, that doesn't mean you couldn't have kidney issues in the future, but you know that if you actually do get accepted to donate one, you're medically considered a very low risk. And included in that is the medical comfort that you're 
your remaining kidney will handle uh, the work of both. So you really only need one kidney, which is why this whole idea of live kidney donation even, even exists and works for both donors and recipients who at the end of the day only will have, you know, one active kidney. But here's the thing. Um, while most everyone is born with two kidneys, the reality is, is that if one fails, they'll likely both fail. And that's just how it goes. So it's unlikely that someone who has uh, kidney failure uh, and they'll, ha they'll have a situation where one kidney goes and the other one's just fine. So this idea of having a spare kidney, if you ever need it, isn't really based so much in reality. It would be like a scenario where if your car gets a flat tire, all four tires go at the same time. And that the idea that you might have a spare in the trunk uh, doesn't really provide much help anyway. Um, and I guess the last thing to, to be aware of that is if one is a kidney donor and by some long shot you ever do need a kidney, you go to the top of the National Kidney uh, Registry. Um, and being matched for a donation is not as complicated as a stem cell match or something uh, that has a deep genetic testing. It's mostly based on blood type. So there's usually any number of people that can be matched for any other number of people. Um, from a surgery perspective, it's called laparoscopic assist, which means there's basically there's a small incision to take out the kidney and a few, I guess, minor holes poked in you to, to make the process go more smoothly. It's a few days of discomfort, and honestly, within five days of my surgery, I was walking outside a mile and a half with my son, and within five weeks of my surgery, I was back on the court shooting hoops with friends, and while I certainly know that everyone's experience can differ, uh, I don't participate in triathlons, and I'm not really super uh, in super great shapes, and I don't, but I don't think my recovery in that area was so out of the ordinary. Uh, and lastly, I guess I would say that, that all medical costs for donating kidney are borne by the recipient's insurance. So there's no out-of-pocket costs um, for you as a donor, and that's especially true if you time it so that you don't have to take any days off, as I did, which uh, was in the beginning of our, uh, I guess, our Christmas winter shutdown. So I think it's important for people to at least, you know, uh, know kind of what the logistics are behind that and know, um, you know, if they're considering it or not considering it. I think it's fair to, to make sure everyone listening to this podcast at least is somewhat educated to know what the considerations are. And, and for me, uh, calculating and all those things I just mentioned, uh, it worked out to, you know, I had the opportunity to do it and I'm glad to have had the chance. Great. So, Howard, can you tell me about when you met the person that was going to receive your kidney? Was this before or after the actual donation? So I had my surgery on a Tuesday morning, which was both Christmas Eve, the 24th, and also the second day of Hanukkah. I had my surgery on a Tuesday morning. I wasn't really up to meeting her. We didn't plan to meet um, until I left the hospital that Thursday. So I was in the hospital for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Thursday afternoon, Thursday, late afternoon, um, I had, you know, uh, been ready to kind of meet with her. Fact is, I could have done it sooner, but I honestly didn't want her to see me like in a hospital gown or in any kind of pain because the first day or two after surgery, there's there's some discomfort, you know, and I, I, I kind of didn't want her to see me in that because I didn't want her to feel bad or badly. Um, and though. I didn't want to yeah. bother her. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's super nice of you to, to, to think well, that way. Maybe, or maybe I'm vain. I don't know. but uh, <laughs> Maybe it's that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, my wife had met uh, her or and met her family members, sort of, because we were on this, we had surgery the same place the same day, 
and we were on the same hospital floor in Montefiore. So my wife had walked around and seen her and, and, and spoken to her a little bit and her family a lot more. Um, and then was kind of brokering this, uh, for me on that, la- that day. So I met her on that Thursday afternoon. I walked into her room, but I will say it is a super surreal experience. Um, especially for me who had been kind of hoping to do this for a while. Like there's just, there's just an anonymous person on the other end of it. Like I didn't know who it was. It wasn't directed obviously towards anyone specifically. It was anonymous till the end. Um, so you don't know how to think about it other than you're helping someone and that's great. So at least for me, maybe, maybe, you know, you protect yourself from that emotion a little bit by, by not thinking much past that, like you're helping to save someone's life and that'll be awesome. Um, but then when you meet someone and there's tears in their eyes and there's like a whole life that sort of presents itself to you that you never could have guessed what it would be, you know, um, it's, it's, it's kind of blows you away. She is Israeli. She, she had been a, a refugee from Syria as a teenager. She, she left Syria on foot in the uh, early seventies um, with a bunch of friends and was rescued and made a life in Israel as a, basically as a, um, as a radio reporter um, and, a, and a radio personality but had had a had a, a daughter who she had raised as a single mom and um, had a bunch of siblings that lived in the states in in New York. So to meet her and you know to 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 see the you know the, the tears and the gratitude and you know you meet a stranger and sometimes you you hit it off like <laughs> uh, this was a very different kind of meeting of a stranger and hitting it off. Um, and I will say it's, again, it's, it's only a little bit uncomfortable because this was something I wanted to do. So the gratitude that she was expressing to me was a little bit strange because I was like, no, I like you, you got something great this week. I also got to do something great this week. I also did what I wanted to do this week. Like it wasn't like, I felt like I was, you know, making a decision for her specifically as much as making a decision for someone and it turned out to be her and that's that was awesome so for every act good or bad there is a potential for the butterfly effect to unfold how has your decision to donate had an impact on the recipient's health uh, but also her overall well-being and her family's happiness and well-being right so it is incredible and 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 frankly that is something that i hadn't really given much thought to like i said i kind of you know, maybe, so, you know, <laughs> I wanted to donate, I wanted to help someone, but I didn't really play out all the scenarios. So I met this woman, her name is Rosette. And when I met her, um, it was her and her sister in the hospital, sister visiting her. And, and, and she was so grateful. And she told me even then, you know, just in the first meeting, a little bit of her life story. And, and she was, had all these things she was doing professionally. And she decided to retire because she was chained to a dialysis machine where she was on dialysis for, you know, three to five days a week. I mean, she's not an old woman, but she sort of rolled down her responsibilities in life. And then as you start to talk to her and, and, and such, um, you start to realize that there's so much connected to everybody. And we know this, but we don't think about it in real terms. Um, about an hour after I met her, I get a FaceTime call on my wife's phone from her daughter, who uh, was in New York at the time as well, um, for her mom's surgery. And she, there's a woman, who, you know, a 24-year-old woman I'd never seen before, just crying on the phone, um, thanking me for, for, for saving her mother's life and for, for donating uh, my kidney and, and really, you know, saving, giving her her mother back. And, like, you don't think of that. I mean, you, 
in your head, you kind of do realize those things can happen. But you, now their story was that the daughter was very ta- is was very talented artistically. She was accepted into an art program in Italy, but because her mom was a single mom and because they didn't have a ton of family in Israel, she, the daughter wouldn't leave and go to Italy because she didn't want her mom to be alone. So just looking at it from that perspective now, um, now that her mom was presumably on the road to, to good health, she wouldn't require or she, the daughter wouldn't feel a need to be there as much. So now she was already planning on, on starting her, uh, you know, her art career and her training in such a more formal way. And you start to learn all these things that the siblings who were in the U.S., the things they had given up to be able to take care of their sibling in Israel, the things that start to unlock all over the place really through both on that side of the house and, and which is to say like all these lives that are connected and, and sort of, you know, the obstacle, one obstacle gets removed and you don't really, you know, you, you don't realize up front, but then you start to see how like the water flows from different estuaries and different, you know, kind of brooks and streams into the river because now the, the, the dam is open. Um, and even on my side, like, honestly, there've been a ton of people who have, have, have reached out to me, having heard my story, who, who maybe now are a little bit closer to giving or interested in the process or, or looking to get educated on it than, than otherwise would have. I actually spent two hours on the phone last night with a friend of a friend in Cleveland who was set to donate a kidney this morning. I had met her the week after my surgery, um, and she was sort of had started to think about it seriously just prior to that and then was inspired to push it. And this was at the end of December. And then she was set to donate today. Now I believe that the surgery was pushed off because the recipient had a little bit of an infection they have to get past, but you know, on, on, on both the, the recipient side, my recipient side, you see these lives opening up. And then on my side to see kind of like secondary and I guess like, you know, tertiary uh, effects of, of other people asking questions and, you know, it really, that's kind of the the long-term payoff i guess that that you know you can get from these kinds of things because you really do see changes that happen that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise yeah that that's a great thing howard uh, often we don't just organically we don't see the residual effects of the good things that we do in life but this is a great example of how one act how that can have the the positive ripple effect so i think it's tremendous that the daughter called you and you had another sense of gratification knowing that you that you impacted not only her but her entire family and then other people as well yeah i mean it, it, it's really incredible i mean we the week after surgery i went to um i went to the back for a follow-up and, and we met with uh, my wife and i met with rosette and her daughter in their apartment they were keeping right by the hospital um and we really got to know them a little bit and, and heard all these stories fly, you know uh, increasing uh in all the different plans they had were making um we've kept a relationship with them. We speak to them every couple of weeks. They, she actually went back to, she had to stay in the U S for three months after the surgery to be near the hospital and have tests. But then literally the day before um, the COVID shutdown hit, I think it was March 10th. If I'm not mistaken. Um, she flew back with her family or with her daughter to, uh, to be home in Israel. So she just got out before, before there were all kinds of quarantines and shutdowns. But we spoke to her, I think two weeks ago on a Friday morning, um, and, and we have a friend now and, and we have a friend and, you know, we jokingly, uh, she calls herself my sister and, you know, she's, she's, she asks us every time when we're coming to visit them and, and stay with them in Israel, uh, if, and when we go, um, again. And so, you know, like all these things are just out of the ordinary and, and, um, and really just 
super nice for for me, for my family, for my kids, for for everyone involved. I think it's it's really something we're grateful for. Yeah, I think it's terrific that you stay in touch and you've been a part of each other's lives. And I love that. So let's transition here to something a little less heavy, our lightning round. Seven questions, yeah. five seconds to answer each one, or at least start answering each one. And let's go. Something you learned about yourself during the COVID quarantine. Uh, something I learned about myself during the COVID quarantine. Uh, I really like my family and that uh, I really should be walking more and exercising more, especially when it's more convenient now. Do you have a doppelganger? Who do people say you look like? Back in the day, um, there was uh, a couple pictures of Andre Agassi. My mom had actually put up on her refrigerator a picture of Andre Agassi at a U.S. Open press conference um, because it looked so much like me. (laughs) During COVID, essentially all live events have been on lockdown. What's the first thing you're planning on doing once all the restrictions are lifted, which is coming up little by little? A restaurant, a concert, what you got? I would like to go out to dinner with uh, my family. And honestly, I run a youth softball league that has had to take a hiatus before it started. So um, really on this side, I'm trying to figure out when the best time, whether the summer or whether the fall is something we can go ahead and start to get that kick started again, because because uh, uh, we have about 320 kids who are, are waiting to find out what team they're on and when they get to start playing ball. You have the ability to go back in time and change how you dressed in high school. Do you change anything, and if so, what? No, no. I was—I uh, knew what I was doing in high school. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, changing what I dressed like uh, maybe three weeks ago. My wife would like to do, <laughs> or maybe since I've been in shutdown. But, uh, but back in high school, I had a little bit of game in the dressing area. I like that. I like the confidence. <laughs> Montfail colleague most likely to listen to this episode of the podcast. I'm going to say Megan Kaczynski because she helped write uh, an article about it. And I guess she wants to see if I was making it all up or if I'd make it up twice. Got any phobias? find myself, I'm not afraid of heights, but I find myself when I'm in these really high situations being a little uh, uncertain. Yeah. George Carlin once said, I, I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling from heights. <laughs> That's what yeah. He said. yeah. I, so. I think it's I'm afraid of depths, right? <laughs> Historical figure from the past who would make a great Twitter follow. Um, historical figure from the past who would make a great tweet. Winston Churchill. There are books of his quotes that that one after the other, just, you know, if there was ever a guy who was probably ahead of his time in terms of uh, tweeting, it would have to be Winston Churchill. So Howard, um, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. You've given me, I'm sure many others, um, a reason to pause, think about what we're doing to help our fellow citizens. Uh, in small or large ways, and it's it's really a wonderful lesson in altruism and selflessness. So I hope to see you again in the office very soon. Thanks, Joe. The only thing I would add to that is if anyone is at all interested, they can, E-I-S-E-N is the way my last name begins to be spelled. Um, they can reach out to me, and I'm happy to talk through any experience and help them make a decision not to do it, or if they're interested in finding out more, they can. Sounds great. Thanks again, Howard. All right. Be well. Stay safe. So normally we'd end the podcast here, but after hearing so much about Rosette, I decided to give her a call in Israel and get her perspective on the medical procedure that helped save her life. Here's what she had to say about that and about Howard. How has receiving this kidney from Howard, how has it changed your life for the better? It, uh, it changes uh, everything. Uh, 
um, for sure. I'm now a, a new person. You can you can uh, say it. I uh, I can uh, enjoy my uh, my time to do whatever I want. I uh, till now all the time I I thinking about him, what he do, what he does, how he feels. You know, it's it's like my my uh, my uh, my uh, my brother. He, he knows that. No, uh, well, you know. <laughs> I do. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. So very hard to explain how I feel. I am very uh, happy to have the uh, <coughs> kidney. It's uh, it's already changed my life for good, and I can eat whatever I want. I can walk. I can. Before that, I walked maybe five minutes uh, a day. Now I can walk forty-five uh, minutes. He is the one for six from six million people who match me. And I have new family also in New Jersey now. He is Howard and his wife and his kids, and I hope uh, I can meet them this uh, year or next year or whenever they want to come. Everything in my life is changed for uh, for good. You've been listening to our campus podcast series, The Montvale Muse. To nominate yourself or a colleague to be a guest on the show, feel free to contact me directly either via email at jdeprospero at kpmg.com, via Skype. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.